There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Andrew Palmer, The Economist's Business Affairs Editor, and this is Money Talks. Later in the program, an exorcist in Paris and how the city is reported to be contaminated with bad spirits. There are some who are connected to the church who complain that the church has been too passive, too unwilling to get involved in this, that maybe the priests are not so keen to do it. And why President Trump is playing hardball in renegotiating NAFTA. One thing that trade geeks in Washington have been really frustrated with with the Trump administration is that they tend to see each trade deal in isolation. But to start, we head to Brazil. In the litany of bosses' gripes about that country's poor business climate, rigid labour laws vie for pride of place with the convoluted tax and licensing rules. No wonder Brazil ranks a miserable 117th out of 138 countries on labour market efficiency, according to the World Economic Forum. Its rigid labour code was transplanted wholesale from Benito Mussolini's Italy back in the 1940s. But things are changing, and I'm joined from São Paulo by The Economist's Brazil correspondent, Jan Piotrowski. Jan, President Michel Temer has just signed a sweeping reform into law. What's he done? Well, he has basically uh, finally addressed the gr- these gripes that you just mentioned of Brazilian bosses who have for decades, I mean literally decades, been trying to lobby for uh, more relaxed labour rules. They introduced uh, new types of uh, flexible working hours, temporary contracts, home office work, and basically it should encourage in time additional job creation. Uh, Bankers at Santander, a big Spanish bank, reckoned that as many as 2.3 million new jobs could be created as a result of these changes. Now, you say that the bosses are going to be happy with this. They've been pushing for this kind of reform. What about the reaction of workers? Labour unions, for their part, are livid. And the main reason they're very angry is that the law also does away with the obligatory levy, which every single worker, regardless of his or her membership of a union, must pay towards unions. Are there any particular sectors or industries which you'd expect to be most affected by this? Smaller businesses may actually be happier even than than large businesses. And the main reason is that what the law, perhaps the most important sort of fundamental change that the law should bring about is uh, to try and move from a rather confrontational uh, sort of labor relations to more collaborative sort. And that is because one of the things that the law now posits is that uh, agreements between workers and bosses will supersede some of the stodgier provisions of the labor code which do remain in place. So at company level, uh, collective agreements will override provisions of the labor code. Now, it also means that there might be fewer 
cases going to the labor justice system in Brazil, which is in itself actually terribly overworked. Mostly the relatively paternalistic labor judges tend to side with workers whether or not these grievances are justified. The new laws basically, first of all, they encourage collaboration, so to settle out of court for bosses and workers to settle their differences uh, before entering litigation. And second of all, by relaxing uh, many of the of the relatively absurd rules uh, with which uh, Brazilian labor laws are filled, it means that these workers will have fewer opportunities to sue uh, their bosses over trivial things like, for instance, over small transgressions. My thanks to The Economist Brazil correspondent Jan Piotrowski. Next, an exorcist in Paris. It's said that the city, along with Lyon and the French Riviera, are the area's worst contaminated with bad spirits. Search online and you find a whole host of healers, mediums, new age practitioners, cabalists, shamans and energeticians. Many advertise themselves as being able to help businesses blighted by black magic. I'm joined from Paris by The Economist's European business and finance correspondent, Adam Roberts. Adam, first things first, how on earth did you come across this story? Well, like any good journalist, of course, I went out looking for the subjects of my story, but I I got the chance to attend an exorcism at a friend's house in central Paris and spent the morning following the exorcist as he went through his his process and his it displayed his tools of the trade and and showed us how he did his business it was a fascinating delightful morning and obviously a lot of nonsense and um, apart from this individual there's a wider industry out there is is this a growing market but it does seem to be. There seems to be some sign that demand is, is rising for these sorts of paid-for exorcisms. So among the immigrant community in Paris, the African community especially, there seems to be a great uh, hunger for these sorts of rituals and uh, exorcisms, but also among those who are wealthier and maybe just don't feel right about their house or they need their farm to be uh, cleansed of wicked spirits or they just feel like trying something just in case it helps. So that does seem to be happening more than in the past. And, and who is carrying out these things? Shouldn't the church corner the market for, for exorcisms? Yes, there are some who are connected to the church who complain that the church has been too passive, too unwilling to get involved in this, that there's always been a demand for exorcisms and for getting rid of bad spirits, but maybe the priests are not so keen to do it. And in the age of the internet and easy technology, uh, a lot of independent private practitioners can jump in. I talked to one exorcist who says he does as many as 15 of these a day. And since you can be paid between 100 and 150 euros per exorcism, that makes a pretty tidy income for the private practitioners. And so in a sense, the church ones have been pushed aside by the nimbler, more dynamic, agile private ones. And what about the customers? Are they, are they happy? How do they judge success? Well, my particular friend who had this exorcism done at her house didn't conclude clearly that it was any better, but she said if she believes things have improved, then maybe that will help. I guess the proof of the pudding is in the eating. The fact that these private practitioners are able to get enough customers to keep coming back to them suggests they're providing some sort of service that people like. You could call it voodoo business, but it probably is making some people feel happier anyway. Fun stuff. My thanks to The Economist's European business and finance correspondent, Adam Roberts. 
If you have any thoughts or opinions on what you hear on Money Talks, such as labour reforms in Brazil or exorcisms in Paris, then do get in touch. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. And finally, President Donald Trump has made it clear that he thinks that the North American Free Trade Agreement is terrible. He sees it as a job killer, a one-sided arrangement creating trade deficits and one of America's worst deals ever. So on Monday of this week, the administration published the clearest indication yet of how it plans to run the NAFTA renegotiation. I'm joined from Washington, D.C. by The Economist's economic correspondent, Sumaya Keynes. Sumaya, let's start by looking at what the highlights are of the statement of American negotiating priorities. What would you pick out? The first point of this summary document of their negotiation objectives mentioned trade deficits. So they put that right at the top of this uh, renegotiation. They want to lower the trade deficit with Mexico and Canada. And that's going to make life quite difficult. As you know, economists have been saying for a very long time, trade deals are not the primary determinants of trade deficits. And therefore, they're kind of setting themselves up for failure. If that's their metric of success. A second highlight I'd pick out um, is that on some things, they've been fairly aggressive in their negotiation objectives. So they've said that they want to remove this thing called Chapter 19, which is a way of settling trade disputes. And the Canadians in particular will find that particularly difficult to deal with, as that's one of the mechanisms they have of protecting themselves against American duties on their exports. So what's your view on how this sets us up for the renegotiation to come? What are the next steps? And do you think we'll end up with a successful deal? Well, the official negotiation can start in 30 days. Um, In a sense, this this document is a good sign because it shows that the Trump administration is paying attention to process. You know, they've understood that Congress is going to ultimately determine what they can negotiate. And, you know, whereas they might have arrived into office thinking, okay, great, we're going to recraft American trade policy single-handedly with this document, it shows that they're now paying attention to process, to consultations, which is hopeful in terms of the overall success of this process. However, you know, obviously the tough language, the dispute settlement I just mentioned, that is cause for alarm. You know, that could be very difficult for the other countries to stomach. And the other thing that's worth mentioning is that there's a really tight timeline for this. They really need to wrap up the negotiations quickly before Mexican politics gets going, before the congressional elections. And given those time constraints, you know, getting this deal done is going to be very difficult. Now, the Americans also seem to be thinking beyond NAFTA, although the statement this week concentrated on that deal, there was language in there that had a broader uh, reach. Can you walk us through that? One thing that trade geeks in Washington have been really frustrated with with the Trump administration is that they tend to see each trade deal in isolation. So whereas the Obama administration saw the Trans-Pacific Partnership as this grand vision that ultimately might bring in China, the language of the Trump administration seemed to be suggesting that they were treating each deal individually and that they weren't thinking about the overall benefits. Now, the language in this negotiations document is actually a cause for hope. They've got language in there about state-owned enterprises um, that really isn't a problem with uh, Mexico and Canada. That looks really like they're trying to set the precedent, maybe in future dealings, um, because obviously state-owned enterprises are a massive trade issue when thinking about China. Equally, they've got 
uh, language in there on currency manipulation. Again, not such a big deal for Mexico and Canada, but clearly a huge point of tension in other trading relationships. So it looks like they're trying to set up uh, future negotiations with a much broader perspective than economists have been worried that they had. Nice to hear you sounding sanguine about uh, trade. Our thanks to the economist Sumaya Keynes in Washington, D.C. And that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in the show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. Do join us again next time in London. This is The Economist. Economist.